BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us in our progressive national town hall meeting. Congressman Pocan, former vice chair, former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a member of the caucus, Represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. Is also on the Appropriations, Education, and Labor Committees. And uh, you can find him at pocan.house.gov or you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back. So, uh, you know, what's on your mind? Randy Weingarten from AFT did a great press conference talking about the bogus nature of critical race theory. Got my neighboring Republican congressman, you know, criticizing it, saying how awful. And I tweeted back, well, show me somewhere where it's happening first. And then right. otherwise, can we talk about infrastructure and do something useful together? You're right. It's just that's this month, right? Before it was Biden's border problems. And then it was another issue and another issue. And they're going to keep throwing spaghetti at the wall. They're good at doing that. And we could either be misdirected by it all or keep moving ahead on a real investing in real infrastructure, both physical and other. And I think, you know, that's what we're trying to do right now in the House and Senate, as well as since I serve on the Appropriations Committee, I've been very, very busy this month. We'll go by like a blink because we're going to get our appropriation bills done out of the House since our fiscal year on September 30th. We'll get everything done before the August break. So lots going on, but critical race theory isn't one of them. Yeah. Is uh, anything that goes to reconciliation presumably has to go through your budget committee? Well, so it's kind of confusing. The budget committee is is a committee, quite honestly, I don't think needs to exist, but it, you need some committee formally to set the overall numbers. Then the Appropriations Committee spends the money the Ways and Means Committee technically is in charge of revenue and taxes to bring in revenue. Uh-huh. So there'll be some numbers set by the budget committee that need to happen for reconciliation to happen. So it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Mm -hmm. But the real work of the spending and appropriations right now for our annual budget is happening through here. And then separately, there'll be the infrastructure bill or bills that'll move forward that you've heard about. And then that'll happen under reconciliation using the numbers that are passed by the budget committee. But uh, budget committee, I was on it for uh, a couple 
sessions, and uh, I have to admit, I left there going, okay, what do we do here again? And I, I know John Maramis doesn't always like to hear what I say that. It has an official function. It's just it's not generally used in the way that it needs to. Right now, though, we absolutely have to pass something through there in order to trigger reconciliation, which, let, which gets the other part of infrastructure done needing only 50 votes. That's great. Congress is on recess for the rest of this week. You guys are back next week, if I'm recalling correctly. Well, the House is technically not in. I'm not sure about the Senate. I'll be out there. In fact, i got to fly out Sunday night because um, we're still marking up the appropriation bills in committee. We'll finish that by the end of next week, and then they'll go to the full floor. Mm -hmm. But the House technically um, isn't in next week. However, I will be out there the entire week. Okay. Well, where I was going with that was wondering, number one, is there a possibility that, and this is probably more of a Senate question, I guess, and, uh, Mitch McConnell was trying to jam through as many judges as he could. He just canceled the summer recess and said, you know, we're going to get work done here. Is there any indication that Schumer might do that in the Senate or, for that matter, that that might happen in the House, uh, number one? And number two, for President Biden's big reconciliation-based Democratic Party-only passed infrastructure legislation. You guys are still working the details of that out, right? Yeah, and part of that is depending on what the other infrastructure bill, this bipartisan so-called compromise in the Senate, what that entails and then what will will be in the other bill. But Nancy Pelosi has been very clear we're not moving the bipartisan the so-called compromise if we're not moving the other bill. So that's good. She's doing the exact right thing. We've already been told we'll be back in at some point in August to deal with this um, after Senate action. The Senate, I believe, is in the first week of August, so we likely could be in the second week if if the Senate gets their act together. But uh, otherwise, the Senate could keep um, being there. The, the problem is, you know, uh, it, as you know, it's a few Democrats uh, show they're getting lots of attention right now. It's a matter of when they decide that they're going to actually do something and then you know the senate can move but right now i think there's an awful lot of um ego stroking that is uh unnecessary but going to be part of the process uh, for at least a few folks because of the whole filibuster thing exactly i mean yeah. joe manchin kirsten cinema and maybe a few others we're going to have to you yeah. know until they decide they're going to do what they're inevitably going to do anyway uh in the meantime they will get lots of attention Okay, so let's pick up some phone calls here. Pam in Chicago, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. I wanted to talk about messaging because it's important that, you know, it's not how you say it. Sometimes it's what you say. And Biden needs to remind us about the stimulus. He needs to, and his press secretary, uh, all of you need to communicate. Uh, you can't say it enough about the stimulus and what the Republicans were offering and what you offered. And then the other issue is with the pandemic, we're still in the midst of this thing. So as opposed to Biden having to explain that, you know, where we didn't reach our goal. And of course, that's how much of the media reported it. He should be saying this is where we started. We didn't have a plan and we've advanced to 65 percent in adults or whatever the numbers are. So let me ask you. In the messaging, you have to remind people of where we were and where we are now. Do you agree with that? And is that something that Biden can incorporate in his messaging? Because, Tom, right now, and, and this is not hyperbole, and Congressman, this is to you. I feel like Fox and that whole or right-wing communication system is almost tantamount to the same propaganda machine that caused the war 
in Rwanda. I feel an extreme amount of hate coming towards black people and the Democratic Party and voters. And it, this is serious. And I know you take it serious, but I, I want to make sure that Biden and the press team get this right. They ha- I know he wants to move forward and be positive. I get it. But you must remind people of where we came from. Yeah, no, Pam is actually doing a better job than most of the Democratic uh, consultants because all they want you to do is do uh, buying ads so that they can uh, make their cut, their 15%, right? And uh, often the messaging is pretty awful. Um, But Pam is exactly right. We have to repeat over and over because that's the only way people will really understand how big a scope that American recovery plan is. Now, the only thing I'd say, Pam, is that's why Joe Biden's traveling around the country, right? He's trying to now sell the infrastructure plan um, but I think he also is mentioning some of what we did with the recovery plan. And you're right. We need to do more of that. The stimulus was a big part of it that put money in people's pockets. We put shots in people's arms. We got people back into jobs and uh, we were able to get kids back into school safely. That's what the American recovery plan is. Extremely popular. And we need to be talking about that on a regular basis as well as trying to get the infrastructure plan done. But uh, you're exactly right, because when people see that we're doing something, uh, that's what they expect of us, then they're happy, and then they will continue uh, to be active. But if we don't reinforce that, uh, we do it at our own peril, because as we know, the Republicans will keep throwing spaghetti against the wall. Right now, it's critical race theory, and it could be bar- uh, the border, it could be whatever stupid issue that they're going to put out there that they've manufactured, and they'll repeat it and repeat it and repeat it enough that it almost seems like it's real. And we need to talk about what actually is real and what we did. And you're right, that stimulus is a big part of it, Pam. Cliff in Cleveland, Ohio, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm calling about uh, Social Security uh, COLA for 2022. I read an article uh, that it's going to be a big one, but I need uh, some answers on this. Trump made some changes to my Social Security and I imagine millions of others of Social Security. Most of my COLA now, whatever I get, goes to the change in the Part B deduction. It used to be fixed. When Obama was president, it was a fixed amount. Now it goes up every year. That increase in Part B deductions is eating up my COLA. My COLA doesn't even cover the cost of my rent increase increase from year to year. So I hope you guys can do something about that. I appreciate your, your attention, and you guys have a great day. Thank you very much. Yeah, Cliff, I think what you're referring to is since the COLA, the cost of living uh, adjustment for uh, Social Security is tied to the consumer price index, because there is some inflation now, that means there'll be a bigger increase than you had in some years. Um, So uh, I guess that's a good thing. That also means, though, your cost of goods went up. So maybe that's not a good thing. The the second thing, though, I'd say is, you know, I think many of us still would like to change that uh, cost of living adjustment to be a, a... CPI-E, so the Consumer Price Index dash, um, I think it stands for elderly, which is uh, the amount uh, that, that most seniors actually spend their money on. It's less on gasoline, it's more on medicine. And if you actually had an index uh, assigned to that, which is a formula that's already out there, uh, it would be a much bigger increase based on your actual expenses. And, you know, I know John Larson from Connecticut has been leading a bill for us to fix Social Security by lifting the cap for some of the wealthiest and a few other things. That's something that should happen, Cliff. I don't know if it'll happen this session. Uh, it should happen because it's the right thing to do. But you're right. You will get a bigger COLA, but you're also going to have bigger expenses. That requires Congress, not executive action, right? 
Correct, and that's why uh, many of us are trying to push. There's over 200 people who are sponsors of that bill, so clearly it would pass the House. I think, once again, the question is, what will the Senate do? All right, <laughs> back to that. Matt in Austin, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Uh, yes, I have a question, and that is why, with all the creative people in this country that put on all the TV shows, most of the music and everything else, why are they not putting out or giving themselves over to put out creative ads for the Democrats? Why do we? The only thing that people remember is the Willie Horton ad, and it's the economy, stupid. They're one liners, and that's what the people can deal with in this country. But why do the Republicans come up with these things more than the Democrats? I just don't understand. Maybe you can help me. Yeah, Matt, so you bring up a point that a lot of people bring up on a regular basis. Um, I I think the one caveat I'd say is I don't know if it's necessarily advertising that's needed, but I agree that it's messaging or maybe branding that's needed. And um, in fact, right now I'm I'm proofing a a small book from a friend um, who he and his son is actually a branding expert, uh, is working on this with the same frustration you have. Why aren't more people uh, able to help when it comes to that? And um, But again, I, I don't think it's so much advertising. The Republicans, don't forget, are far more disciplined. You know, Donald Trump says uh, the sky is orange, and I guarantee 95% of Republicans will say it's clearly orange. It's Democratic hoax that it's blue, right? And then you'll find 35% of America will say, of course, it's orange. It's always been orange, right? That, that's the problem with Republicans. Democrats, we're a little more independent thinking. We always have a little bit of a, a bigger challenge, but that doesn't negate what you said. Um, we should have better branding and more consistent messaging, uh, whether or not that's advertising. I think is another point, but I do think that if all uh, Democrats had a common message about the, the falseness of what the Republicans are saying, we would be better off. Ed, in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman uh, Pocan. Yeah, Congressman. I, I guess my question is, is why whenever a Democratic senator or Democratic congressman get any kind of airtime, do they not immediately state, state what Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, McConnell said about Donald Trump after the January 6th insurrection. They should be pounding that over and over and over and over because the general impression I've been getting from people talking with people is that the uh, the Democratic Party is being uh, uh, Neville Chamberlain-esque in, lo- in looking towards January 6th when we need them to start acting like Winston Churchill. Yeah, you can do that, and there's plenty of video with that, and I see a lot of it already, and clearly it doesn't change the the hearts uh, and minds of most of the MAGA crowd, right? So I guess you could do that, uh, or you can simply try to move forward on the stuff we're getting done. What I have seen over and over in recent focus groups and polling is people want us to get something done. They're kind of looking forward, not necessarily backward. And that's not to say we don't need the commission and need to get to the truth of January 6th, but I think us talking about the American recovery plan that was huge, uh, what we're going to do in infrastructure, again, which is huge, these are things that affect everyone across the country and their lives, that is what we need to talk about right now. So, you know, there's plenty of video out there that people can see, but if you watch a video of of the chaos and the mob insurrection of January 6th and say that it's peaceful people, like my senator, Ron Johnson, says, there's nothing you can say or or show that person that's going to change it because they've decided to drink that Kool-Aid. Yeah, literally. We'll be back with Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Yeah, this is really toxic stuff.
Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls. Richard in Duluth, Minnesota, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. I can see uh, Wisconsin on my picture window. I have a question about Cuba. When President Obama was in office, there seemed to be a drive to normalize relationships with Cuba. And it all seemed to fall apart once Trump got in office. And I wonder if we're going to resurrect that drive. Richard, that's a good question. Uh, you know, we've been obviously grappling with a lot, right, coming out of COVID, trying to get these um, American recovery plan done, which we did. And now the, the infrastructure bills, uh, watching the president get his administration going. But I completely agree with you. I think we should be normalizing relations and doing more of what we saw under Barack Obama than clearly Donald Trump. I haven't seen a tremendous amount of discussion on this, so I don't have a better answer where that's at, other than, you know, they also got immediately put into the Middle East and dealing with Israel and Palestine and some other issues around the world. But uh, I'm going to try to find out, and I'll try to see if uh, there's anything that they've actually put out on Cuba. I just don't know offhand. Sue in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning. I just have one quick question. If the Supreme Court decided that corporations are people, why are they not taxed at the same tax rate as people? Sue, you are so logical. <laughs> this is our problem, right? Um, you know, clearly, uh, how can you have the rights but not the responsibilities? Well, because that's how the Supreme Court is, has interpreted the law. And I, I think, you know, that's one thing that I, I think people should be really cognizant of as we talk about all this infrastructure. One of the main ways to fund this, according to Joe Biden, because he realizes his problem, is going after uh, some of the, the, the way the corporate behavior is, hiding profits overseas, all this other negative behavior, because no individual would get away with it. Uh, his attitude is no corporation should get away with it. Well, it's not purely taking that definition as an individual to the, the, the degree that you explained, which I, I agree, if we're going to give them those rights, they should have every single responsibility. But at least it's really moving towards uh, holding corporations accountable. And let's also remember at the G7, um, he also had conversations with other countries about having a minimum corporate tax rate so that corporations can't play countries against each other. So, you know, this is something I've been very impressed that the Joe Biden administration understands, and they're trying to restore some of that tax fairness. Uh, but you're completely right on the bigger issue. And, um, you know, it, it is difficult uh, that you and I pay way more than the wealthiest or than corporations on our taxes. That's a pretty screwed up system. Jeff in Redding, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. I would like to see somehow us make the value of recyclables be so much that everyone would start recycling and those who did not would be paying for the whole thing. Those lazy people who would not recycle will pay for the whole change of life in our world. Yeah, I, I hear you, Jeff. One of the real problems, and you pointed it out, is that sometimes some of the markets are so soft that there's no encouragement whatsoever for recycling. And yet, um, clearly, for many, many other reasons, we should be doing a whole lot more uh, in this area. And, and right now, um, you know, plastics, like even my community, Madison, a very progressive community in my district, not where I live, but in my district, has had, a, I think, set back some of what they were collecting because there's no market, I believe, in plastic bags or some other things. It's just that there's not enough right now. You're right. We should find greater ways to incentivize so that uh, we're actually bringing recycling to the level it needs to and saving our landfills and saving our planet along the way. Susan in Madison, Wisconsin, speaking of which, you're on the air with Congressman yeah. Pocan. 
My question is, what are you going to be doing to help stop Line 3 and Line 5 in Michigan? Uh, Line 3 is coming through the uh, territory that has been uh, negotiated with the Native population in Minnesota, and also they are already having problems. And Enbridge is a very dirty company, so I'm asking that question. What are you going to do about it? Most of what we've seen is coming out of the White House right now, right? He stopped the most recent very large project at 95% completion. And, you know, he's committed, uh, Joe Biden is committed to making sure that's not moving forward. As a member of Congress, there's some limitations. It's kind of like, as you know, in our area, the ATC lines. We've done all we can uh, to help along those ways on some uh This is a utility line expansion, Tom, in my area. Mm -hmm. And uh, because Republicans, uh, the the Republican former legislator who was on the Public Service Commission had uh, private uh, texting conversations with a company that I think now he's working for, uh, the courts were able to overrule it. But everything that we tried around environmental concerns and other, um, we have certain limited powers as a member of Congress. So I was glad to see the president do what he did. And I think, um, you know, the, the more that we can do to push towards renewables, and green energy and adopting the principles of uh, the Green New Deal, the better off uh, we all are. Um, But, Susan, uh, certain powers we don't have uh, as members of Congress, and uh, at least some of those issues have been resolved by the president's recent declaration. Just uh, 15 seconds. Is this more the strategy? Let's focus on moving toward green renewables rather than uh, shutting down pipelines, and that'll just follow naturally? Well, there's going to be a transition period no matter what, right? Whenever you ramp up the green renewables, you're still going to need some of the traditional. So I think that's how people look at it. Um, But we haven't ramped up the renewables yet. So that has to be, I think, a crucial focus moving forward. Yeah, brilliant. Step one. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. George in Garden City, Kansas. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Yes, Representative Pocan. Uh, President Obama started the Select Choice program when he was in office. And then when Donald Trump this is was for elected, veterans? Yes, veterans, okay. VA program. Yeah, the you. Select Choice program. Obama started it. It was a really great program. Donald Trump got elected into office, fiddled around and messed with it, and it is really a pain in the butt to try to get scheduled to get an appointment with the VA. So I was just, and Tom even talked about this in the past, that Trump had put some of his stooges into the VA. I was wondering if President Biden had got those people out yet, or if he had plans to get them out and to get the VA straightened up again. 
whether it's the VA or an agency, clearly Joe Biden is doing that. He's putting his people in some much faster than others. Still don't have an FDA head, for example, in some other areas that still have to happen. But, you know, this is one where I strongly believe we need to fix whatever problems we have with the administrative side of the VA system so that we have a strong VA system, as the promise has been to our veterans, uh, rather than doing uh, this idea that you can go to any doctor um, because, one, it takes significant resources away from the VA, and, two, uh, it also isn't giving you that precise quality um, direct health care that I think you should be getting at the VA. I have an excellent VA hospital here in Madison that does everything from transplants to, to, to common uh, you know, medical uh, issues. And it's, it's well-liked, and we need to really double and maybe triple down on making sure those VA systems work as they should and, and be very efficient, rather than, I think, letting dollars slip out into other private sector healthcare systems, because ultimately that will have a negative impact on veterans. Henry in Atlanta, Georgia, you're on the air with Representative Pokham. Hey, thank you, and I really enjoy your show, Tom. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, Henry. Uh, I uh, take medication from uh, uh, that's provided by Gilead uh, without insurance. This medication is three thousand, over three thousand dollars a month. I have coverage, but it only covers half of it. And I had to stop taking my medication about six months ago because I couldn't afford it. And I'm a guy that makes ninety thousand dollars a year. I really wanted to be pissed off at my health care providers. But what are they to do with medication so high? And I wonder, why is Gilead charging so much? Why are these pharmaceutical companies charging so much? And it seems like they prevent any other company from making a generic brand that is much more uh, affordable. And the, my real main concern is not only the cost of the medication, but I haven't heard anything coming out of the White House about what can be done about the cost of medication. I'll give you two words, Al Capone. Fortunately, the pharmaceutical industry has learned to organize crime at a level that they can rip off U.S. consumers, sometimes to the detriment of 20 times the cost of prescription drugs we'll pay for in this country versus other countries. And because of their uh, huge uh, political octopus tentacles that they have, uh, very little gets done around this. Um, there are 1,500 pharmaceutical lobbyists in Washington, D.C. That's equivalent to three for every member of the House and Senate. I don't know who my three are, but that's a pretty screwed up system, if you think about it. That's one of the reasons that Gilead can get away with what they're doing and every other company in charging these unbelievably unconscionable prices for prescription drugs. Now, the good news, Henry, is there is a major bill, one of the first 10 bills we introduced in Congress uh, that we're trying to get done. The president is also supportive in the White House, so they want to do this. Uh, The question, again, will be, I think we get to, you know, what's Joe Manchin? Um, whose daughter happens to run EpiPen, uh, going to say about pharmaceutical prices, what some of the other members of the Senate, and for that matter, the House, who have very close ties to those 1,500 lobbyists and those companies that might be housed in their districts, what are they going to say? But there is no question that in many ways the, the modern equivalent of organized crime, uh, you see those actions in how pharmaceutical companies operate in this country. And the last thing, Tom, I want to say, and I'm going to try to repeat this every chance I get when people bring up prescription drugs, every single drug in the last decade that's been approved by the FDA 
has had the support of the National Institute of Health for research, and that is our tax dollars doing that. So uh, every single drug approved in the last decade has had your and my help, and yet we don't see any of the benefits of it. We just get these bills, and they rip us off compared to other countries. There's really no excuse for it, and we have to be aggressive going about it. And I hope that the bills that we have in the House uh, can move forward because we passed them last session, and we're ready to, and Joe Biden is as well. But we've got some issues on special interests and those tight numbers in the House and Senate. Gerald in Tams, Illinois, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Yes, I'd like to bring up about the infrastructure bill. I don't hear anything about any safeguards, but so governors can't take the money and use it for something else. Yeah, Jill, there are. For example, the American Recovery Plan, there were all kinds of things about education is one example that you had to have a maintenance of effort in order to get the additional money that was coming so you can make schools safer to be able to reopen. But sure enough, my Wisconsin Republican gerrymandered legislative body, the Assembly and the Senate here, found an end way in which they can still keep the so-called maintenance of effort up there, but actually kind of doing a, a a shell game and giving a supposedly tax relief in the budget. Now, the governor just came up with some vetoes this morning, and I haven't had a chance to look at them yet, and we'll see what he did in there, that area. But you're exactly right. We have to put as many safeguards in as possible because there are legislatures and governors who will misuse the intention of those monies, and we are seeing some of it right now. That's pretty breathtaking. That's amazing. Yeah. John in Center Ossipee, New Hampshire, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. The actual Consumer Protection Agency that was developed and designed by Elizabeth Warren for pharmaceutical drugs. But my real question was, with the voting rights, I'm not seeing courts. I'm not seeing action. I, you know, I fear, and I truly fear this to, to my heart, to the death, that nothing's going to be done. It's going to be too late. By the time anything is done, it'll be damn too late. So I, I think I might have missed a little bit of that uh, the second part of it. The first part I can uh, address, John, is that the Consumer Protection Agency can't do much because it's it's legal in many ways what they're doing. It may be, I think, unethical. Uh, there may be triggers we should be using within NIH uh, because they do have some ability to try to get some money back from the companies for the taxpayer dollars that go in. But, of course, they want to keep expanding research. I understand that. But there's not as much you can do there as really – going after, um, by statute, what they can charge and having some uh, legal, um, actual statutory language to limit uh, the the ability for them to really uh, take advantage of the American people. Um, and the second question, Tom, I did miss. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, he, I think he was just saying, when are they going to start enforcing voting rights laws? One of the other big bills we're trying to get through, along with, obviously, the infrastructure bills and our budget bills coming forward, is protecting this whack-a-mole strategy we have state by state having different laws. We fix one and another one pops up. We need some national standards to make sure that uh, we can get as close to the idea of a right to vote. Even if it's not in the Constitution, it's certainly implied, and we need to get to that. George in Santee, California, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. My question is basic, is uh, how do you guys negotiate with a Republican Party that refuses to, to negotiate in good faith? George, I'm with you. In order to negotiate, first you have to come to the table. And they think by not coming to the table, other than this little gang of five in the Senate, uh, that they'll stop action. I, I, my answer is uh, we're still going to serve the meal. 
right? Through reconciliation, we can do it without them. And we will. We'd prefer to work with them. We'd prefer to have them be a part of governing. Um, but if they're going to be so focused on the 2022 elections rather than helping their constituents, that doesn't mean we're not going to do anything. And that's why we've been moving ahead and why we did the Recovery Act in the way we did. Um, that said, uh, there have been a handful of Republicans seem to be willing to do some work on the Senate side. Um, but we need more than a handful to get around their arcane rules. You actually need a couple handfuls, uh, along with a few Democrats that can sometimes um, be but why, why prefer to even work with them after the way that they treated President Obama? I mean, they dragged out the Obamacare negotiations for a full year and then never voted and not a single vote for it. You know, we've seen this game before. Why not just say these guys are liars and cheats and they're not acting in good faith and we're going to get stuff done for the American people? And you all need to know the Republicans are not working for you. I think that's the step we're getting to. But I do. I can tell you poll after poll, even the most liberal progressive folks want you to try to work together to get something done. So I think Joe Biden has made that like he has through his whole career a priority. But he's also not going to stop doing things because they won't. And that's the difference he learned from what happened in the Obama administration. I think Joe Biden won't make the same mistakes. Yeah, I hope so. I sure hope so. Teresa in Pahoa, Hawaii, you are on the air with Representative Pocamp. Yeah, aloha from Hawaii. I remember the other day, Tom, you mentioned recently about the U.S. Code 2384, the seditious conspiracy. So, um, Representative Polkan, why hasn't that been brought up, you know, to take care of those people on who did such a terrible thing to uh, to the Capitol on, on January 6th? And also to those who, uh, you know, sent them there. And, and on that day that you mentioned it, Tom... I called my Senator Hirono, Senator Schatz, and the House of Representative Kai Kaheli, and I never got any response back. So I'm just wondering what can be done, because being raised the way I was, it's just a wrong thing to do that they did on that day. Yeah, Teresa, I just want you to know the area south of Pahoa is probably my favorite area to vacation in. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Uh, in the United States. So um, you live in an absolute beautiful area and I uh, look forward to visiting again soon. You know, part of the issue is that that's part of why we're doing this panel on January 6th is to get some of the information. You know, they're doing charges and they're going through through the court system trying to hold some people accountable. They're still trying to get uh, some of the faces matched on people who uh, obviously broke in and did damage and, and did other things uh, through the January 6th uh, insurrection. Um, but I, I don't think the issue, I haven't seen great 
concrete issue with those who are being charged. I think the bigger problem is we need to connect some of the dots around um, conspiracies. And is there, you know, clearly I think that Donald Trump invited thousands of people to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, and then he uh, essentially directed them uh, to go to the Capitol, and then he didn't stop things. Uh, and, And I think there's a lot there that we've all seen with our own eyes. But we have to be able to prove some of those things um, in a court of law. We have to prove some of the actions and by, and by who uh, did those actions along the way. And that's, again, why we need the commission. Again, it's why the Republicans don't want to have a commission, because it'll make, make the, their great um, MAGA leader uh, unhappy. Uh, and in a cult, you're not allowed to do that. Um, so that's part of the, the problem that we're having. But in general, I've seen pretty aggressiveness um, by uh, law enforcement going after people. But uh, to get to some of... What you're getting at, we do need to have more information, and that's exactly precisely why we need the commission that Nancy Pelosi just created. Morris in Long Beach, California. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Uh, Representative, let me just say this. The Democrats are doing a great job. Glad y'all took back the Senate. I know people play checkers, politics, and whatnot, but uh, I think the Democrats are doing a good job considering where y'all started from. But I got a question for you, my brother. They got two you got two poisons here. You got a commission and a select committee. Now, the Republicans did not want a commission. Okay, so now we got the select committee. My question to you, sir, here we go. It'll be my the impeachment days. Uh, God is good. If you are subpoenaed by that select committee, and, and you don't honor that subpoena the way the, uh, no, nobody honored the subpoenas that they got during the impeachment under Donald, Donald Trump. If you are subpoenaed by that select, I don't care who you are, Tom Hartman, Spokane, who doesn't? If you are subpoenaed by that committee and you don't show up, can the sergeant of arms or a marshal come and pick you up? Conceivably, yes, Morris. And I think it's really going to be incumbent on whoever uh, essentially will be in charge of the committee to be willing to do that, because I agree, that was the problem. You know, we couldn't get a lot of the Trump administration to cooperate, but we don't have a Trump administration anymore. We have a friendly administration that can work with us to get some people to come that otherwise may not have uh, under the Trump administration. But also, you're exactly right. Um, If someone doesn't want to adhere to a subpoena, uh, then we need to make sure there's consequences to that, because we need to get the information. We need to know uh, who directed things, who talked to who. I mean, I'll never forget hearing people say, and I remember on January 6th hearing this quite a bit, that people were talking to people directly in the White House on January 6th um, who were uh, parts of that sedition. And and I, we need to know uh, what those conversations were and who those folks were, because I think that's going to be extremely important moving forward. Donna in Palatine, Illinois. You got a quick one, but Donna? You know, there is that law that was written in 1876 or something like that that says if the Congress, if uh, the Electoral College does not have a a clear winner, that it then goes to the House of uh, Republicans, I mean, a House of Representatives, for a state, uh, one state, one vote election. Um, His Congress doing work to rewrite that law to get rid of that, to make it at least, you know, based on um, the number of uh, representatives or something like that. The yeah. one state, one vote is is even worse than the it's Senate. A, it's a great question. Yeah, Donna, I just, I just, it's a great question and even more important. I'm not sure if there is anyone directly working on it, but I have it down, and uh, we're going to have a discussion with that with the office. It should be, if nothing else, right? Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And they clearly were shooting for that, and now we have to know. Anyone who wants to abuse our laws, we have to make sure laws that are in a place, they can't be abused. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping in with us uh, today. It's, it's always so nice to have you with us. 
Yeah, same here, Tom. Thanks so much. Thank you. Nice Con- to hear from everybody. Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. You're listening to Tom Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Ruth Marcus, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and Conservative Takeover. This is from the prologue. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy had a request. Would President Trump have a few minutes to speak privately? It was April 10th, 2017, a sparkling spring morning in Washington, and Kennedy was at the White House to preside over the ceremonial swearing-in of the newest Supreme Court Justice, Neil Gorsuch. First time in history that a sitting justice had sworn in one of his former law clerks to join him on the bench. Just 80 days into Trump's chaotic presidency, the confirmation of Gorsuch represented a rare and welcome victory for the beleaguered new administration, reeling from court defeats of its travel ban and despite controlling both houses of Congress, unable to repeal President Obama's signature health care law. Perhaps most important, as the, conserv- as the prominent conservative lawyers, activists, and judges assembled in the Rose Garden that day understood, Gorsuch's addition was just one step, necessary but not sufficient, in the three decades-long conservative bid to cement control over the high court. This effort had been as frustrating as it was lengthy. Seeming opportunities for dominance repeatedly slipped away with Republican nominees, including Kennedy himself, turning out to be less reliably conservative than advertised. But Republicans have learned from these costly errors, assembling a farm team of potential nominees whose judicial records could be carefully scrutinized to to detect any risk of ideological deviation. Gorsuch was among those who came bearing the seal of approval of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal group that had made itself the central actor in this court-shaping exercise and was playing an even more outsized role in the new administration. Trump took pains to single out one man who was not in the Rose Garden that day, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, for all he did to make this achievement possible, quoting Trump. Indeed, everyone present knew that McConnell had been the indispensable man leading to that moment. Had it not been for McConnell, President Obama would have filled the vacancy created by Justice Anthony Scalia's sudden death in February 2016, and Justice Merrick Garland would be sitting on the high court anchoring a newly fortified liberal majority. McConnell, with his audacious announcement that the opening would not be filled, no matter that Obama had 11 months remaining in his term, had avoided that fateful outcome. His intervention meant that Gorsuch now occupied Scalia's seat, a conservative for conservative swap. The next vacancy was almost certain to be far, the far more critical one, shifting the court's balance instead of affirming it. On that score, all eyes were on the 80-year-old Kennedy, then serving his 30th year on the high court and, by dint of age, years of service and political allegiance, the most likely to depart. Thanks to McConnell's ruthlessness, Trump had inherited what no president had before, the gift of an existing vacancy. Supreme Ambition by Ruth Marcus. in West Los Angeles. Hey, Ruth, what's up? Given the recent Supreme Court, you know, decisions on voting, 
I remember listening to you before, and you had a novel and ingenious way of getting around the filibuster 60 votes needed to change to majority where only 51 votes would be needed. I've forgotten exactly what your method was, but it was ingenious. Don't recall, Ruth, any specific gimmicks. I mean, the filibuster is not a law. It is part of the rules of the Senate. And the rules of the Senate can be changed with a one-vote majority. So you've got 50 Democrats in the Senate, plus you've got Kamala Harris. That's 51 votes. So if all 51 of them vote to change the rules, they can simply strip the filibuster out of the rules or the variation that I had suggested, because it seems like there's some affection for the Senate pretending that it's like this great deliberative body. And so we should still have the filibuster is that, you know, if so many Americans saw Jimmy Stewart's uh, movie back in the day. Mr. Smith goes to Washington and they and they think of the filibuster as Jimmy Stewart standing there saying, I'm not going to stop talking. And, you know, like this. And so let's just change the rules so that the filibuster is actually like that. I mean, right now, when Rand Paul decides that he doesn't like the voting rights bill, he simply sends an email or has his staff person send an email to Chuck Schumer's staff person and say, I object. And suddenly it's stopped until Schumer can gather 60 votes to overcome it. We should flip that around and say, okay, fine, if you object to it, you and 40 of your friends have to sit, or 39 of your friends have to sit on the floor of the United States Senate continuously, and you have to talk. And the minute you stop talking and the minute your friends leave, then we're going to hold a vote. That's the end of the filibuster. And do it the way that Jimmy Stewart did in the movie, because that's what most Americans think a filibuster is. The two ways that I can see, or three ways, one of them I mentioned just changing the Senate rules to end the filibuster. There's a third way to modify the Senate rules. Back in the day, Robert Byrd and company paved the way, I believe Robert Byrd was part of this, paved the way for the Senate to have an exception to the filibuster for anything that had to do with budget issues. And this is called budget reconciliation. If it has to do with raising money through taxes or spending money, then you can, you don't have to, you, you can ignore the filibuster. And the rationale that they used for this was that the power of Congress to raise taxes and spend money is established in the Constitution. So you don't want to limit that power with a filibuster. Then the power to appoint federal judges. Harry Reid blew up the filibuster in regard to that, and his rationale again was in the Constitution, in Article 3 of the Constitution, or in Article 1 of the Constitution, it gives Congress the power to advise and consent the president in the appointment of federal judges. And because this is a congressional power, it shouldn't be limited by a minority. It shouldn't, you know, it should be subject to democracy, basically. And then sure. Mitch McConnell came along and said, we're going to apply that same logic to the Supreme Court. So what I would say is, okay, it also in the Constitution on multiple occasions talks about the right of people to vote. And so that's in the Constitution, too. So let's change the Senate rules to add a third exception to the filibuster, the first being for budget, the second being for judges, the third being for things that have to do with the rights of voters. And then you can pass the For the People Act. If one person out of that 40 doesn't do the filibuster, then at that point, it breaks there's down. a vote. And 
but but the outcome of that vote could still be the same. Is that correct? Or it could be. I mean, we've got, for example, there's 50 Democrats. If one of them decides that he or she does not like that particular piece of legislation, then the legislation fails. I mean, that's how narrow our margins are right now, which is why we have to work as hard as we can to get more Democrats elected to the Senate next year. And of course, the uh, two high profile people, the two people who have actually published pieces in uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, arguing that we shouldn't end the filibuster are, of course, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Joe Manchin has tried heroically, I would say, to get Republicans to prove that he can get uh, 10 Republicans to go along with him on anything. And what has happened over and over and over again is the old Lucy with the football scenario where he's got nothing. You know, uh, the Republicans say, oh, yeah, fix this and tweak that and do this and get rid of that. And so you make the legislation Republican acceptable. And then when you present it for the vote, the Republicans say, no, we're not going to vote for it anyway. And I think it's just time to walk away from that. But what's happened with Kirsten Cinema is absolutely fascinating. There's a new poll that came out. This was just last week. I found this posted over at dailycoast.com by Blue Tuesday. The title is Kirsten Cinema is in real trouble after awful poll numbers and big new revelations. First of all, to put this in context, in Arizona right now, among Democrats, Senator Mark Kelly, Gabby Gifford's husband, the guy who was elected in the 2020 election to be the uh, junior senator from Arizona, he has an 87 percent approval rating. 87 percent. And the percentage of voters who are Democrats who disapprove of Mark Kelly, and by the way, incidentally, his main issue is gun control, the percentage of Democrats who disapprove of him is 6 percent. So he's got 87% approval rate. Kirsten Cinema, 47% with Democrats. I pointed out last week, you know, that Claire McCaskill had said on MSNBC that Kirsten Cinema is more popular than Joe Biden in Arizona. Well, yeah, there's a lot of Republicans who are very happy that she is screwing with Democrats, but they're never going to vote for her. There's no way. Not even a possibility, not even a remote possibility. This is a really tough one. I mean, the cinema's approval rating with the Republicans right now stands at 54 to 32%. 54% of Republicans approve of her. But, you know, like I said, it does not mean that they will vote for her. And so Kristen Cinema has, it appears to me, and I, again, I'm an observer on the outside. She's welcome to come on this program and tell us what is actually going on. I believe Sean has reached out to her staff and said, would you like to come on the program and talk to us? We routinely do that. But she's going to have to decide, does she want to be the quirky Democratic version of John McCain maverick, regardless of topic, and just kind of ride that maverick bus, probably to losing her reelection bid in three years? Or does she want to get on board with the Democrats and get her approval rating up there. I mean, she's not even at 50%. She's underwater. Her approval rating with Democrats is where Donald Trump's approval rating was with the American people, under 50%. You cannot survive as a politician with those kind of numbers in your own party. So she's going to have to make some serious decisions here. Hopefully she'll make the decision to end the filibuster and get with the program and help rescue America from this uh, right-wing takeover that is in progress. Karen in Tucson, Arizona. What's up? 
I live in Tucson in Pima County, and Kirsten Cinema is my senator. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that there are a lot of people here who are not willing to vote for her again, and they want her primaried. Of course, Pima County is the more liberal area of Arizona, you know. Mm-hmm. Along but with Maricopa. Yeah. Well, Maricopa is very conservative. Oh, really? Uh, it's, yeah, the East Valley there is very conservative. That's why a lot of things get passed is because of the voting up there. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, she voted with Trump 57% of the time. Whoa. As a potential primary contender emerge that has a broad consensus and support across the party in Arizona? Well, I would vote for Ruben Gallegos out uh-huh. of, uh, uh, he's up in Phoenix. Right, who and represents there's a couple in the people, House. But there are a couple other people who are kind of starting to emerge. They haven't really said much, mm-hmm. but people are starting to take notice. And if you read the Arizona Daily Star, there are letters in there every single day about how disappointed they are in Kirsten Cinema and how they're not going to vote for her again. Do you think if she were to be the person whose who's vote uh, undid the filibuster and passed the For the People Act, for example, that she could redeem herself, or has the damage been done so badly that that's not going to happen? I think the damage has been done. She was down here on the border with, I think it was John Cornyn, mm-hmm. and people were not happy about that. She's, I think the damage is done. I think she's done, yeah. actually. Interesting. Karen, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for the information from Tucson. Lynn in El Segundo, California. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind today? Well, it's interesting you're talking about cinema. I think that she doesn't care at all if she's reelected or not. She doesn't strive to continue as a senator. She wants to be a lobbyist. They get a lot more money. She wants to be a corporate lobbyist, and she's trying to get attention of the, um, you know, the big corporations. That's what I believe. By the way, this morning on Democracy Now, there was a major impactful. Uh, a story about Greenpeace in the UK. They mm-hmm. released a video that has Keith McCoy and uh, another uh, lobbyist for Exxon talking about their strategy. And they uh, say Senator Cap- Capito, Capito, um, Capito, the ranking member on the environmental. Yeah, Shelley Moore Capito in West Virginia. Yeah. yeah. And Joe Manchin. He's one of our. Ta- they said, "Who?" The reporter asked them, "Who is are the crucial guys for you?" And she said, "They said." Senator Capito, Joe Manchin. I talk to his office every week. He's the kingmaker on this because he's a Democrat from West Virginia. There's uh, so it's the Mansions, the Cinemas, the Testers, and they say we're trying to get to Biden through his friend Senator Chris Coons. Right. They actually said this in a video, secretive video. They didn't know it was recording. You should see this video. It's, I have. It's it came out. It came out last week, and and we. Uh, I actually read parts of that on the air on Thursday. It, it absolutely is amazing, Lynn. And coming out and saying it. Thanks for the call. I completely with you. Israel in Chandler, Arizona. Hey, Israel, you have some thoughts here on uh, cinema? Mark Kelly is up in 22 because he was elected to complete McCain's term when right. he died. And then cinema is up in 24. And That's absolutely, most of us and most that I talk to are, are just disgusted with the positions that she's taken. And the other thing I wanted to say, yeah, up here in the valley or Maricopa County, to be more precise, there are huge sections that are extremely right wing conservative. This is where Paul Gosar comes from. I'm sure that name mm-hmm. rings a bell. Andy Biggs, also representative of a district here in the Valley. I'm sure that name rings a bell as well. But we do have pockets of liberal, progressive 
populations. As a matter of fact, here in Chandler, one of our representatives at the state level is a uh, Democratic representative. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, uh, the majority of Phoenix, Phoenix itself, a bit more progressive. Cinema came out of there as well. She, she was a representative of Tempe, Phoenix area. So we do have pockets in the uh, valley up here where there are progressive candidates. And we've also had state-level positions, not the governor, but uh, Secretary of State, uh, Attorney General, where we've had Democrats elected, which means they've been able to garner the majority of the vote statewide. Right. Which means that Arizona is, uh, if not a purple state, inching in that direction. Absolutely inching. I'd say a little bit more than inching, if not completely purple. But I've been here for 20 years this summer, as a matter of fact, and and I've seen it going that way. We elected a Democratic governor in 2002 who unfortunately left us to serve in the Obama administration. I wish he had stayed here to continue building the Democratic Party, but it didn't happen. So that's where we're at. Okay, Israel, thank you. Thanks for the information and the inside scoop from Arizona. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi. I see how you're trying to plug holes in the filibuster. Uh, uh, fourth category would be security issues, where that things have to be voted on because of security of the nation. That can't be filibustered, right? Well, it's um, interesting. I mean, you know, the, just to recap for people who might have just tuned in, Bill, um, the point that I was making a little earlier to an earlier caller was that, uh, you know, the filibuster requires 60 votes out of 100 people in the Senate. There's only 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. Um, so first, back in the day, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Robert Byrd played a big role in this, um, they carved a hole in the filibuster for budget issues, raising taxes and spending money. Uh, and the rationale was that because budget issues, the power of Congress to, to raise and spend money, is basically the essence of Article One, Section 8, because it's in the Constitution, therefore it shouldn't be limited by a minority in the Senate. So then uh, Harry Reid said, similarly... With regard to the appointment of federal judges, this was when, when Mitch McConnell was blocking federal judges for Barack Obama. Uh, Harry Reid right. said, no, we should, we should allow federal judges to go through because that's in the Constitution, you know, the advice and consent of the Senate. That's in the Constitution, too. And then Mitch McConnell took that logic the next step and said, and we're going to apply that to Supreme Court justices as well. So what I was saying was, okay, there's a third area that is also in the Constitution, and that is the right of people to vote. And so we should again change the filibuster to say that you can't filibuster legislation that has to do with the right of people to vote, whether that's a new Voting Rights Act, whether that's the For the People Act, whether that's the John Lewis Act, uh, whatever it may be. So, Bill, uh, what's what's goes beyond that? Tom? Yeah. Yeah. That the uh, Senate should pass a rule that all laws, just like the president, has 10 days to sign a law. Otherwise, it goes into effect. The Senate should be given 30 days to pass a law. It supersedes the filibuster or anything. The law must be voted on within 30 days, otherwise it's passed. I think the president's power to filibuster is pretty um, is pretty solid. I mean, it's... Uh, filibuster his 10-day rule? I mean, not filibuster, excuse me, veto, uh, to veto legislation. Uh, is uh-huh. I believe that's in the Constitution. I, I uh, well, yeah, it, it requires we have, the signature. It is in the Constitution. Right. But if we have a friendly president, 
that we don't mind if he signs it. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, but you have to plan for unfriendly presidents. I mean, you you well, hope for the best and plan for the worst. I, you know, I, I, I think out of conservation of money, which is a big deal, they limit when they have to vote to 30 days, no matter what. It's over. Yeah, time-limiting debate, time-limiting discussion, saying bills have to come up, things like that. Those are all things that I could get behind. Anne in Aroma Park, Illinois. Hey, Anne, what's on your mind? Why we can't have nice things? Campaign financing. And I, I guess what bothers me is that the one provision, or one of the provisions Joe Manchin is very opposed to in the Help America Vote Act is public financing of campaigns. He does not want that in there. And I'm thinking if we don't get public financing of campaigns, I don't think we'll ever be able to get even a half a mile closer to what what our our peers have in in other true first world nations, because I don't think we're a first world nation anymore. And that's my point. Yeah, I I would take it even beyond public financing of campaigns and, and point out that in most of the other developed countries in the world, you don't have to register to vote when you turn 18 or whatever the voting age is in that country. I think it's pretty universally 18 now. When you turn 18, the government sends you your voter registration card and says, OK, you're all signed up because they've had you on their rolls ever since you were born. Your birth certificate basically enrolls you to vote. And we should be doing the same thing here in the United States. Instead, we've got this whole vestige of Jim Crow where local officials get to decide whether you are eligible to vote and make you jump through all kinds of hoops uh, to, to, to register and then have the power to remove you from the voter registration rolls based on some vague suspicion that you've moved or just the fact that you live in a largely black neighborhood or Hispanic neighborhood. It's just wrong. I, I think that we should just clean up our act with regard to voting and try to get you know, voting participation back. You know, it's over 80 percent in Sweden. Because they just, wow. you know, they, they mail, you know, it's election time. Here's your ballot. It's in, it comes in the mail. Yep, that's what we need. That's really what we need. Yeah. I don't think this is rocket science. And then, and then to your point, Anne, talking about public financing of campaigns, if we can't get something like that together, then we're, we have just surrendered our entire political process to a couple of hundred billionaires. And, you know, that's no way to run a democracy. And thanks for the call. And thanks for listening to WCPT. What a day, huh? We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We're going to preserve our republic. We have to participate in it. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll continue our conversation tomorrow. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.